get started, I have just a couple of housekeeping items for those of you who might be new for us. Um, and that is that um, as uh, a live audience participant today, one of the perks of that is that you do get to ask questions directly to our panelists. How this works is we have Kara Thornton. I don't know if you could see Kara. Kara's our marketing manager here at Right on Fundraising. And Kara will uh, take your questions through chat. And when there's a natural break in the conversation, she will take your question and pose it to our panelists. So please feel free to make your comments, to talk to each other, to ask questions of the panelists. Uh, I would encourage you to introduce yourself if you'd like to today in today's chat and get to know other folks that are joining us from around the country. So let's see here, what is up first? 10 most common grant writing mistakes. Um, I think before we jump in to this piece, I'd like to introduce you to Jonathan Weber Mendez, my co-host of a fundraising masterclass um, and longtime right on fundraising. My goodness, what do we call you, Jonathan? Jonathan's held just about every single position here at Right On Fundraising. He's my right-hand man, guru on all things fundraising. And he's also going to introduce us to today's panelists. Jonathan, go ahead and jump on in. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Uh, really excited about today's masterclass and to introduce you to our panelists. We've got a great group of panelists here. So first, I want to introduce you to Labrisa Williams. Uh, Labrisa is a Tulsa native and serves as a program officer on the George Kaiser Family Foundation's Equal Opportunity Team. She's responsible for developing new programs in support of the foundation's effort to reduce domestic violence, sexual assault, and substance abuse. She's a strong leader with experience in creating <laughs> and executing programs that address health inequities in underserved communities. After graduating from the University of Oklahoma, Labrisa spent two years as a Peace Corps volunteer developing HIV AIDS awareness and prevention programs in Botswana, Africa. She also served as the founding executive director of the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative and completed community health-related fellowships with the Aspen Institute and the Ronnie K. Irani Center for the Creation of Economic Wealth. Labrisa is currently pursuing a master's degree in public health from the University of South Florida. We're so lucky to have you. Thank you so much for being here today, Labrisa. Can't wait to hear your insights. Uh, next, I want to introduce Right On's own Patty Sullivan. Uh, Patty Sullivan is a relationship here, relationship manager here with Right On Fundraising. And she's experienced in grant writing, prospect research, and fundraising. Uh, prior to her work at Write On, she served as the executive director of an adult literacy nonprofit in Northwest Arkansas. And past higher education roles included teaching English, distance learning, and international student programs at the University of Louisiana and the University of Arkansas. She's been writing and managing successful state, federal, and foundation grants for more than 15 years. Patty holds a degree in communication from Arkansas State University and a master's degree in English from the University of Louisiana. She is also a former Peace Corps volunteer teaching literature and composition at the National University of Rwanda, and she serves on the Butterfield Trail Village Foundation Board, has a membership at the Rotary Club of Fayetteville, 
and the Arkansas chapter of Grant Professionals of Association, the Grant Professionals Association. Uh, so excited to have Patty here. I can tell you that in my time with her as a colleague, I have learned so much uh, personally. So a lot of good insights from Patty and I uh, can't wait to hear those. Awesome. But Thank you so much, Jonathan. Um, so uh, for those of you who might be joining us for the first time, typically what we do before we hop into our topic is we want to make sure that everybody has the same language and is on the same page. Um, our grant writing, as many of you, I'm assuming most of the folks on today's call have done some grant writing and that's why you're joining us today. Grant writing is a pretty easy thing to understand just academically, but everybody does approach it a little bit differently. So before we jump into the 10 most common grant writing mistakes, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page as far as what grant writing typically entails and some of the things that those grant writing mistakes are going to kind of intersect with today. So at Write On, there's we really consider five steps to be primary grant writing steps. You can see we've got identification of the need, prospect research, cultivation, solicitation and application, and then reporting and stewardship. These are kind of the big five, no matter how you slice and dice a grant. And just to discuss briefly what each of these mean, we talk about identifying the need. Uh, typically, best practice is to start with the budget, right? We don't want to just pluck a number out of the sky or just decide that we just want more money this year because we want more money this year. We want to make sure that whatever our needs are, that they are driven by the budget and that the budget clearly shows the need. We also want for our need to be programs and constituent driven. At Right on Fundraising, we talk a lot about community-centric fundraising and making sure that our need is driven by constituents and what would best serve them in the community is really rooted in the concept of community-centric fundraising, which is leading with the community need in mind. Identifying the need is also typically going to include whether or not you're trying to scale a program, uh, if you're just looking to grow in a specific area, if you're trying to get new restricted funding to a specific program, it can include capital needs, and of course, it also includes general operations. The second piece of grant writing is getting that prospect research done. There are so many different, really great grant platforms that you can use for prospecting. Here at Right on Fundraising, we really like to use Candid, but we've also cross-referenced with Instrumental, Grant Station, Grant Watch. Um, there are a bevy of different things that you can pick from. If you don't have funds to subscribe to some of these services, which can get kind of pricey, you can always head down to the local library, which typically is going to have at least one subscription to a grant database. Uh, and this is where you'll sit down and conduct your prospect research. And here you're looking for foundation donors whose missions aligns with your programs and your goals. You're going to qualify these opportunities. Qualification is a whole other very big topic. Um, but if you're interested in how grants get qualified at Write On Fundraising, you can actually access our 
prospecting tool for free online right now. If you go head over to our website at rightonfundraising.com and sign up for the newsletter, you can actually download our prospecting tool, our qualifying tool for free. And it has a lot of really great data points on it. Um, and Jonathan Smiley, because he is the one who created this amazing tool that kind of help uh, help you along in figuring out uh, what types of opportunities really are going to be the best use of your time. And I'm sure many of you have internal best practice practices as well for prospecting and figuring out who you really want to cultivate. Speaking of cultivation, it's the third and very important step in grant writing. One of the things that we tell our clients at Ride On is that we can write the most beautiful grant in the world. Patty and her team do an incredible job. But if the relationship between the nonprofit organization and the foundation isn't strong, the likelihood of that grant getting funded goes down pretty significantly. It's really, really important, therefore, that nonprofits reach out to foundations to learn about their fundraising priorities, make sure there really is a match, and develop those one-to-one personal relationships wherever you can. You also want to make sure as a best practice that all of your donors are included in any kinds of regular communications, your newsletter, things like that, so that they can stay up to date on all the exciting things happening at your nonprofit as well. I guarantee you, because they have told us over and over again, private foundations read your newsletters. Make sure they're on those lists. And then, of course, there's the actual submission of letters and applications. This is where we're really looking carefully at those guidelines to submit letters of intent. That is what happens before an application for some private foundations in the applications. For private foundations that don't offer submission guidelines, you could submit your cover letter and a really solid case for support. But key here, of course, is following directions and paying attention to what the foundation is asking you to do. And step five in Ride On Fundraising's grant writing continuum is stewarding the gift. This is where we're going to comply with all of the terms of the award if terms came along with it. If terms did not come with your award, if you just got a check and an award letter, congratulations. You still want to produce either a mid-year or some end-of-year communications for the foundation donors that both thank them for the gift and show specifically how the gift that they made is making an impact. Because remember, at the end of the day, you all are aligned. They want to help the people that you want to help. So it's important that our communication is showing that you are having an impact in moving the needle all year round. All right. So that was the quick and dirty. Everybody is now up to speed with the basics of grant writing and ready to get into the nitty gritty, right? This is the exciting part where we turn it over to the panel and we slice and dice. One note before we jump in. So we have something special today that I'm really excited about. Not only are we going to look at the 10 most common grant writing mistakes and how to avoid them, we decided that for this particular fundraising class, for this podcast masterclass, we didn't want to just go online and take what other people had done and kind of, you know, hodgepodge a list together. We wanted to go to the private foundations that nonprofits throughout the Midwest, particularly, are are going to and soliciting gifts 
and ask them what they felt the 10 most common grant writing mistakes were. So we reached out to more than 50 private foundations across the Midwest. So this is a totally custom and unique set of data to this part of the country and what foundations are looking at, what they see, what they feel like we can grow upon and what they feel like we're doing well as well. So with that, we're going to get into the good stuff. Jonathan, I'm going to be Vanna a little bit here and let you kick off some of our first questions and introduce to everyone. Um, well, we already met our guests, of course, Labrisa and Patty, um, the 10 most common grant mistakes, starting with the top four. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Lindsay. Really excited about this uh, this portion. I, I got to peek in on some of these yesterday and uh, really excited to hear some insights from our panelists. So uh, first first question I have, um, and I'll, I'll pose it to you, Labrisa, is um, how do you feel about these initial uh, four right here and these rankings? Um, what do you do you agree with them? Do you disagree? What what do you think? Yeah, I think when I first saw these, I was a little surprised actually um, that they were in the ten most common, um, and so especially the ones around the application lacking strong evaluation metrics or lacks outcomes. Um, I see those pretty often. It's not really something that I have to seek out or follow up to get ad additional information on. And so I actually was a bit surprised. Um, and that's kind of my initial reaction. I know for the one where the narrative assumes the reader already knows all about the nonprofit from a previous role as an ED at a nonprofit, it is so difficult to share everything that an organization is doing in just like one narrative alone. And so that's why I think that one was a bit surprising, um, just because it's a lot of information about the great work that organizations are doing and trying to succinctly put it into um, a grant application can be quite difficult. And so I was a little bit surprised to see a few of these. Yeah, I, I appreciate that insight. I also agree. I'm I'm very excited to hear that outcomes are something that isn't a huge issue that you see those a lot. That that's something that we focus very strongly at right on on. Um, so glad to hear that that is coming through. Um, uh, Patty, I, same question to you. Uh, what what did you think initially when you saw these these first four? I think I expected outcomes, qualitative or quantitative, to be higher in the ranking because I, depending on the, the experience of the grant writer and the nonprofit, that can be, particularly if it's a brand new nonprofit, that can be a real challenge. And number seven, what Labrisa said, it is so hard to fully describe an organization. Character counts, word count, you all know what, what the issues are there. And they want to describe perhaps the organization in maybe 500, 1,000 words, depending on the, the, the grant platform they're using. And it really is challenging to kind of thread it back in, answering it in other parts of questions. So. You know, one of the ones that uh, jumped out to me as also being a little bit surprising was number eight. And I would love to have both of your feedback on this. So really quickly for our podcast audience that gets this as well, I'm just going to read off 10 through 7, which is the first four we're looking at today. So the coming in at number 10, 
uh, is that the proposal lacks outcomes or qualitative or quantitative data. Number nine, most common grant writing mistake would be that the proposal or application lacks strong evaluation metrics. So kind of connected there a little bit to number 10. Number eight, which I want to talk about here in just a moment, is that the proposal or application is overly ambitious. And number seven was that the narrative assumes the reader already knows all about the nonprofit, which is what you were saying, Patty, which is, it, that's tough. We're going to talk about that one a little bit more as well. But focusing in on number eight here, the proposal or application is overly ambitious. This is one that I, I actually kind of disagree with, and I would love to have both Labrisa and Patty's feedback on this. I'm not sure that I agree that it is um, the role of the private foundation to determine if something is overly ambitious or, or underambitious. I understand, of course, that foundations see a lot of applications, right? Uh, a lot of applications. And especially if they have a good relationship with a nonprofit, they may have a good sense of that particular nonprofit's capabilities, right? And they may want to try and pull them back into something that's realistic. But I think that stating, especially as a top 10, that a proposal or application is might be overly ambitious, I think that stifles innovation, which is also one of the things that we hear about foundations wanting to see more and more of is new ways to serve clients and, and new ways to think about uh, big picture problems. Uh, while I get that not every single application is going to be a home run, if you don't occasionally swing for the fences, how do you prove that you are being innovative? Um, Labrisa, let's start with you. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think I need a little bit more information about overly ambitious. What what does that mean? What does that entail? When I think about that, I think about when I see an application, I want to see realistically, like what can the organization do within an annual, within a year, right? And so being realistic about the goals, being realistic about the targets. Um, if you're saying that within a year, you have an organization with two staff and you're going to reach 50,000 people. To me, that's overly ambitious, right? And so I also take into account the capacity of the organization. So how many full-time staff you have, how many part-time, are there volunteers? And so when I think about overly ambitious, I think less about innovation actually, and more about mm -hmm. the capacity of the organization to do what it is that they have written out within the grant application. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that kind does. of right. That is great context. I really, really appreciate that. So for you, you saw this and you did, did not think about innovation and it doesn't mention innovation. I'm just, you know, reading this on my own. Um, so that's really interesting. What you're looking at is really kind of the moving pieces and determining if you feel like um, the moving pieces are could adequately support what that vision is. Yes. How will the organization... Um operationalize what it is that they wrote on the application? How will they actualize and bring it to life with the staff that they have, with the targets that they want to meet? Um, I think sometimes when I led a nonprofit, I think it's very easy to want to impress potential funders and say, you know, hey, we're going to reach this many people. And it sounds good and it looks good, right? Um, but I think we also have to think about capacity of the team realistically, realistically, how many people can be served? What are the goals that we can you know, really work towards without being overly ambitious is what I, what I, what I mean. 
That's great. Thank you, Labrisa. Patty, did you have any thoughts around that one specifically? I absolutely read it the same way Labrisa did about capacity and about not over. The example you gave was beautiful, saying we're going to reach 50,000 people with two staff members. And I think that the longer reason for that is it's, it is a long game. Philanthropy, you want your funders to continue to support you, to continue to work with your programs. So if perhaps your initial proposal is, is really unrealistic, it, it doesn't support the next proposals. So I think in, in that context, overly ambitious Yes, if you're if particularly with outcomes that can happen because you want it to look good, uh, we all want to look good, and um, it doesn't it doesn't perhaps help that cultivation long term. Uh, so I'm I'm particularly interested, um, especially when it comes to number seven. We both of you honed in on number seven. Um, what I'm interested about it is if you could either share with me a time that you encountered this mistake or what potential solutions can nonprofits have to address this mistake? Because as we alluded to before with character counts and, and limited space, it can get very difficult to, to frame a complete picture. Well, I'll kick that one to Labrisa first, and then we'll... <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to give a little context um, before I answer this question, because I think it might be helpful for folks. So in at the foundation, we have um, grant cycles called the Accelerator and Impact Grants. Um, and the goal of the Accelerator and Impact Grants, are also known as A&I Grants, is to increase access to funding and to ensure that BIPOC-led nonprofits have the financial and technical support to, to fulfill their mission within the Tulsa community. Um, and so a lot of the organizations that apply through the ANI grant cycle are newer organizations um, that may have never received um, like the type of funding that we may be supporting them with financially. And so with that context in mind, um, our application looks a little different for the ANI grant cycle. And so one thing that we encourage and we have a have a portion on the application where they can attach supplemental material. Um, so we ask that people don't recreate things just to apply for funds. So don't go and create a brochure or don't do anything new. If it's existing, we would love to see it. Um, and a lot of folks don't even have websites, right? And so we encourage people to attach brochures, website links, um, and we don't just rely on what they wrote in the application. So we go and look at websites. We look at who is on their board of directors or whatever it is that they attach along with that grant application. And so... I think one way around it is, I don't know how people feel about bullet points, but I feel like when I see a grant application and there's like five paragraphs, I get lost really easily. Um, but also, how do we succinctly share the good things that the organization is doing in a way that um, the funder or the person reading it can follow along and not like get lost in all the moving pieces of the work? I hope that makes sense. Oh, that that makes so much sense. I think that's the art of grant writing is, is sort of being succinct, but telling an overall story. I also love that piece that you mentioned about the website. I know as a consultant, one of the most common things we hear is, oh, don't look at the website. It's a little out of date. And mm -hmm. so it's very interesting to hear 
how um, important keeping those other materials up to date is so that when funders are doing research on their own, potentially, they're having access to, to the most up-to-date information. So I, I think that was a really good uh, kind of nugget in there as well. And this this may not be a favorable comment I'm going to make, but I also think it's on the onus of the funder that if you need more information, like it's okay to seek that out. Like it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to follow up with folks that apply and ask for clarity on something, um, especially if this... Um, organization is mission aligned with the work and you see them being a potential grantee, I think it's okay to, you know, follow up and ask additional questions if it wasn't quite captured in the way that you needed it to be in the grant application. I love that. I love that. I love to see funders taking a more active role. I think uh, that that's really positive for communities. One of the things I, I wanted to jump in here on, um, I, we've talked a lot about seven and eight. I want to touch a little bit on nine and 10, um, because both of these seem to me like things that would come up in um, your logic model. And to both Labrisa and Patty, and Patty, I'm going to kick it to you first, and then we'll go to Labrisa. I want um, to clarify um, maybe the usefulness of the logic model um, and how you feel like it plays into this. Is is the logic model, do you see it being a tool um, that helps people get to these particular metrics? Or are there other tools that you feel like are more effective when it comes to explaining your outcomes and explaining your evaluation metrics? Patty, let's start with you. I always lean towards storytelling if possible and context. And I 100% support what Labrisa says about giving different opportunities for grant grants for new organizations who are community-centric, where they don't have maybe a logic model or a dedicated grant writer. In my work in Arkansas and adult literacy, I'm working in populous Northwest Arkansas, 600,000 people in Northwest Arkansas, if you can believe. But I worked a lot with the other adult literacy organizations in the different counties around Arkansas. And I saw as a very experienced grant writer, a completely different set of opportunities for our work in Northwest Arkansas than my partners who were doing essential work in literacy in rural Arkansas, in the Delta and South Arkansas, in the mountainous central part of Arkansas. And so I'm, you know, I think logic models are important. I think having the numbers are important, but I think that also even the phrase, grant, there are grant writers on the call, logic model can be very off-putting when, oh, when you're trying to help folks learn to read or whatever, whatever it is that you're, that you're doing in your community. That's really I, interesting. Yeah. So Labrisa, bouncing that to you. What are your thoughts on logic models? I've never had an application that included a logic model. Um, and what appeals me is storytelling. And so knowing the impact that this program and this organization is having on community. Um, I think sometimes when we think about evaluation metrics, how can I say this in a way that, that people understand, um, is there are many environmental factors can, that can impact whether an organization, I don't want to say it's successful or not, but can kind of sway 
how they measure success. And so when we think about political um, things that go on within states, and so I think sometimes we rely heavily on an organization to say, hey, we're going to reduce the, I don't know, we're going to reduce homicide rate for the entire state. Right. So if that organization's mission is based on community violence, there are a lot of factors that are also influencing community violence. Right. And so when I think about evaluation metrics, I think less about like those bigger things that a lot of things come in and influence that don't that are not just on the organization to change or to decrease. Um, And so evaluations and evaluation metrics in my mind are more so. like, how are they measuring success? And that can look different, right? It can be, well, we serve this many clients and this per- this many percent of those clients said that they were satisfied with, with our services or led to them having a healthy birth or led to something that was successful. That was also one of the goals of the organization. Um, with the ANI grant cycle, a lot of the orgs are new and are receiving funding for the first time or maybe the second or third time. Um, And some of them don't really know how to measure program outcomes and program success, right? And so we also want to work with them in identifying that it doesn't always have to be quantitative or quantitative, it can be qualitative. And so I think that's where that storytelling piece comes in, um, especially for new orgs who are, you know, really dabbling when it dabbling for the first time when it comes to like evaluating program success. But logic models, I hear a lot about them. I'm familiar with them, but I don't think I've ever had anyone submit and we don't ask folks to submit logic models in our application process. That's really helpful, Larissa. I appreciate that. So we have spent a little bit of time talking about our outcomes, our evaluation methods. Um, the other side, so we're, of course, we're looking at the 10 most common grant writing mistakes today. We're also looking at the flip side and how to avoid them. Patty, do you feel like there are is anything that we've left on the table here when it comes to outcomes, evaluations, a program that is overly ambitious, or addressing um, the idea that you know the uh, the reader may or may not know things about the nonprofit? Anything else that we want to leave on the table as far as how you can avoid these common grant writing mistakes? I think number seven, now, you know, we know that's a struggle to tell the full story and the impact of the nonprofit. I think number seven falls back to cultivation of the funder and making sure if the funder perhaps is in your community or your state, they may understand where you are geographically or a little bit more about who you serve. Mm-hmm. But if you're working with a national funder, a funder in another area who's maybe interested in your area, adding you're just going to have to thread all the other pieces into other parts of the application so they can get a fuller picture of what the demographics of, um, because I told you all on the call, I, I live in the Arkansas Ozarks, but there are 600,000 people where I live. It's, 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 you know, fairly, it's becoming urban almost in parts of it. it's quite dense. And that's not when I say that the location of a nonprofit is in the Arkansas Ozarks, that's not the perception. So you have to kind of make sure that you fit that full story in perhaps in other parts of the application. That's a great point. Um, We have a question from our live participants today. Our first question is from Lindy Way, uh, the executive director of South Tulsa uh, Community House here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
And Lindy Way asks, I think that sometimes it's not that a particular grant that may produce specific program outcomes, but maybe preparatory in nature to set the stage for attainment of attended outcomes. So how willing are funders, or excuse me, are funding partners to support those kinds of initiatives? Labrisa, I'm going to kick that to you. Yeah, I'd like to think that they are supportive in those initiatives. I think the way that it's communicated is important. So whether it's communicated as this is phase one of um, like intended project, and these are like long-term outcomes versus short-term goals and outcomes. And so I think the verbiage around it is important, knowing that long-term can be five to 10 years, but what are the short-term, what is the short-term impact of um, that preparatory stage. And so I think if you think about it in phases and communicate it in a way that, you know, phase one is ideation and then phase two is, you know, there are phases to a lot of the work that we do. And I think on my end, maybe because I come from a nonprofit and I have that experience leading a nonprofit, knowing that this work doesn't happen overnight, right? And I think a lot of funders know that, that a lot of this is we're in it for the long, like it's a long call, it's a long game, um, you know, metrics and evaluation and data and statistics and the the things that we want to see improve. It doesn't happen overnight. And so I think um, just communicating that in a way in phases, right? Like this is ideation. Um, the next phase of us getting to these long-term outcomes is, um, you know, the prep stage where we do one, two, three. Um, but I think I would like to think that funders are open to, the idea of long-term goals, outcomes versus short-term versus immediate, um, but knowing that the organization is working towards some outcomes and some goals, I think is the the most important factor. I like that a lot, Labrisa, especially because it um, empowers nonprofits to show the entire continuum of what it is that they're trying to do and to identify which stage they feel like they're in, be it ideation or growth. Um, and to, to acknowledge that the, the metrics and outcomes are going to look different as they move through the different stages. I think that that long-term vision of where you're going and how the metrics are going to change along the way is really important. We have another question from Julie at The Right Path in Drumright, Oklahoma. Julie asks, how do you suggest we address outcomes and evaluation metrics when our mission, their particular mission, is therapeutic equine-assisted services, is relatively unknown to a lot of funders? So when you're approaching a funder about a, maybe a more niche area of service, mm-hmm. how do you address outcomes and evaluation metrics there? Uh, Patty, let's start with you this time. I think obviously as a grant writer, the first thing I would be looking at other programs and even niche programs, I would work with partners in other states who are trying to achieve similar outcomes to see, you know, to share information, lifts all boats, right? And um, I would also, again, cultivate, if you're looking at the funders, I'd have a conversation with them to, to help them understand more about what you're doing and to help understand how you can best explain. I think that's a bit of a reach out question for, um, for the funder. Labrisa, any follow-up thoughts on that piece? Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think it can be difficult to get that across in an application. 
um, a topic that a funder may not be as familiar with, but I think that is where the cultivation of relationships come in. Um, And sometimes, I mean, I've met with folks who haven't applied for funding, but intend to. And then I go to the meeting thinking it's the formal meet and greet and it's a pitch, right? And so I learn all about their organization before they even submit an application. And so I'm familiar with it at this point. Um, If it's a niche topic, um, I've got a little more context before they even apply. And I know here in Tulsa, there are some opportunities where funders and organizations come together informally um, to ask questions about the grant making process. Um, So I would encourage folks to look for those type of events within their communities that they can attend to build relationships with funders. as scary as it may seem, it's also scary for the funders to show up to those events too and answer some of those questions. Um, but I think the relationship piece is important, especially for niche topics, right? Um, and organizations that are doing work um, that is not so common. Wonderful. Thank you, ladies. All right. We have taken a look at the first four of the top 10 grant writing mistakes, and we are going to move along to the next Three. So coming in at number six, we have a focus on the need of the nonprofit instead of the need of the people served by the nonprofit. Number five, we have overuse of industry jargon, buzzwords, and or abbreviations, which is a personal pet peeve of mine. And I'm on my soapbox on a lot. And number four is simply careless editing. So before we dive in and start to kind of dissect these a little bit, uh, Labrisa, let's start with you. Um, Again, first question, any surprises here? Anything that jumped out to you that you really agree with? Um, I really agree with number six. I don't know that I've seen it, but I know the importance of focusing on the needs of the people being served, the needs of the community that the org is wanting to serve. Um, number four, I actually was a bit confused on what careless editing meant. Um, I am a, I'm notorious for like looking through stuff multiple times. And so I don't know if it meant like overly editing things or being too, um, like detailed when it comes to editing. Um, but that one, I was a bit like, oh, I don't know. Um, and then for five, the jargon and the buzzwords, I feel like I have some understanding as to why people do that. Um, and the abbreviations, I just think we need to spell stuff out. Maybe spell it out the first time and then do the abbreviations later. Um, I know when I transitioned from nonprofit space to philanthropy, I had a, um, I don't know, a directory of like different abbreviations because people would say them all the time. And I'm like, I don't know what y'all are talking about. Um, <laughs> so definitely understand the overuse of abbreviations. Yeah. Um, one of my, so my, my kind of rule around abbreviations is that if your abbreviation does not spell a word that clearly explains or articulates what you're talking about, like, so for example, pause, P-A-W-S, you're clearly talking about an animal thing of some kind, right? But Z-Q-R or whatever, that means nothing to no one. That's, that's not a word. It's not a descriptive Please don't use it because we're not going to remember it, right? Um, Patty, what are your thoughts, just uh, your initial reactions to these three? Um, Absolutely, with the overuse of industry jargon. Although I will say, as a longtime grant writer, looking again toward cultivation, looking at the language of the funder, the way they're addressing your topic, 
because larger funders will have, you know, groups that are working to, to change outcomes. And so making sure that you're, you're understanding the jargon in the same way your funder understands it is, is really important, particularly on more in-depth. Do you, Patty, do you have an example of what that means? Because that's actually a really great point as far as do you and the funder have the same understanding of what that word means? Yes. Um, again, I'm going to use literacy because I spent a lot of time with adult literacy and work and workforce. And this is there's a lot of work being done around workforce and literacy and education right now. And and some of it's coming from federal money that's passing through states. And so there is a lot of jargon in federal grant writing, but sometimes it all it also works at the state level, or even with foundations. And so I would, I typically, it's a lot of work, but I typically go back to the origin of the funding, even if it's federal, if there is some big education program, I go back and look at their understanding of it and see if that's what relayed through the state or the foundation, and then match that, which is a lot of work because it means you need to know a little bit about the history of the funding. Right. But it certainly resonates more if you're staying in the same. Right. And, and to LaBrice's point earlier, that's also something that you can reach out to the funder about and ask and have a conversation about. Um, and probably a really good one to have a conversation about because typically when we're talking about jargon and buzzwords, we're talking about root or core issues or conversations that are happening in our specific areas. So let's jump over to number six, focusing on the needs of the nonprofit instead of the needs of the people served by the nonprofit. I think that is um, nuance, right? Like that there's, there's a, that is a very nuanced statement. And I think it's pretty easy as a nonprofit to say, Hey, what we really need right now is X and Y and Z. And I do think that nonprofits here, sometimes even from funders, ask us for what you need, right? Ask us directly for what you need. However, there is definitely a difference between asking for what the company of the nonprofit needs and talking about um, what the people who are served by that organization need. So for example, there's a difference between saying um, our our advocacy organization needs this new piece of equipment and saying we need a piece of equipment that can better serve our clients because of X, because this is happening to them and this piece of equipment would impact their lives in these ways. That That's a completely different statement. Um, Labrisa, any uh, tips for the folks on the call today on how they can reframe some of their asks to focus more on the people need instead of the nonprofit organization need. Mm -hmm. I like the way that you just explained it. And it made me think about when organizations do um, like individual fundraising and they say, well, if you donate this amount, it will allow us to buy, you know, 50 books. Or if you do this, it'll allow us to do this, right? And so we know that organizations need things, right? They need materials, they need resources in order to provide services and serve communities and individuals. We know that. But I think the connection, connecting those two um, 
could really solve for this, right? So saying that, you know, we need this, which will allow us to do this for community. And by having this resource or this material, we'll be able to serve X amount of families with blank resource. Mm -hmm. And so I think making that connection, because when you do that, it is about the community. You're meeting the needs of the community and the people that you're serving, Um, but you're really just bringing it full circle for the funder to see how that material is not just about us having, you know, the material, but it's about how that material will allow us to better serve the needs of the community. So I think just explaining it in that way and communicating it and bringing it full circle, um, I think is a solution. Yeah, that's great. That's a great reframe. Patty, anything that you would add as a grant writer to a reframe there? To do, I think, um, and I've worked with lots of different nonprofits over the course of my career, and I think sometimes very established NPOs who are 20, 30 years old, older, have they do sometimes just get in the habit of examining what they need on a budget from year to year as opposed to looking back at the rapidly changing root problems of everything that we're doing. And I think that that is, is, um, is tricky because I do think, well, we have these positions, we have these programs, but over the course of, I, I, I wouldn't say decades anymore, over the course of months now, those things change in, in communities. Great. And we have a, a question from the audience. Um, Linda Way from South Tulsa Community House asked, um, on number six, is it possible that in order for the nonprofit to better serve the community, it needs certain infrastructure? Um, I think this is a great question because we deal with nonprofits all the time that are focused on capacity building. Um, and a lot of times these may be administrative or fundraising expenses that aren't programmatic at all. And so um, it's it gets very difficult to frame that in a sense of community needs. So I would love to hear um, how that's possible to, to sort of do that framing or make that connection. I'm trying to think. I know it's... <laughs> And I truly believe that having a strong foundation infrastructure is crucial, right, to a nonprofit. Um, I'm thinking about the framing of that, whether it's capacity of staff. Um, That is a good question. I don't know that I have an answer right now. I have to think about it, about how to frame it in a way, yeah. That's fair. And, and, you know, I think that this is the the overhead question that a lot of folks struggle to uh, frame up. And, and one of the things that I recently read going off a little bit of a sidebar here uh, is just this week, the Chronicle of Philanthropy released an article stating that um, uh, some nonprofits may have up to, may require up to 30% of their operating budget as overhead in order to adequately serve their clients. Um, 30% is a big number. That's definitely a bigger number than we've seen in the past. Patty, any thoughts on, um, let's just shoot for the moon here. If you were going to frame up 30% overhead and frame it as how the people of how the people served by the nonprofit benefit from that. How might you say that? That's um, I've been in the business long enough to see this go from five to 10 to 15%. Right. Five now to we 30. See five, 
15% is what you see a lot in, in grants now as an opportunity, still not everywhere. Um, I do think that everything in a nonprofit is programming. And I think a careful look at a budget and the way that people's, everyone's work moves moves um, or changes for the programs, I think it's possible to kind of look at it that way and can include more things in programming. I do think there's been a time where we were very boxed in on budgets and overheads and outcomes, but I also see some larger funders leading the way towards some change and recognition, to your point, Lindsay, in this recent article about the importance of, uh, of, of being able to run a business, which right. a nonprofit is, in order to, to, um, to fulfill the priorities. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to jump over because we talked a little bit about uh, the jargon and the buzzwords. So I'm going to hop over to number four. Uh, which is careless editing. Um, to me, you know, Labrisa, you you touched on what really does careless editing mean? And um, we don't have a lot more uh, definition of careless editing. I take this to mean grammar mistakes, um, you know, sentence structure. To me, the word careless means um, writing that might not just be as tight as you would want it to be. And um, I don't know about you, Labrisa, but I don't feel... For the most part, maybe there's a few foundations that are real sticklers for for grammar, but I, I do feel for the most part, like foundations don't expect perfection in the narrative. They want it to be clean, of course, and um, they want to, it to be understood, but I don't feel like nonprofits are losing points if they forget a period here or capitalize something over here. Um, so I, I want to talk about what careless editing means to you and also um, the tools that exist because there are a lot of tools now that exist to very cost-effective tools to help uh, uh, grant writers and nonprofits in this area. So over to you first, Labrisa, what would you consider to be careless editing? Um, now that you explain that, I would say careless editing, like, I guess, misspelled words or sentences that just don't make sense because words are misspelled. Like, to the point where I can't understand what it is that you're trying to convey. Right. Um, if, if a period or something is missing, I know mistakes happen. It, like it happens. I think those are things that I would like overlook. Um, I use Grammarly y'all um, like for everything. <laughs> um, and I think that'll help folks. And then if I'm sending an email or something to an important stakeholder, I have a colleague or somebody look over it. So I think proofreading is important um, using Grammarly and just looking over it. Um, but I think the misspelled words or making sure that things make sense, I think is important. And the sentence, when someone reads it, they can understand what is being conveyed. Um, I very, very rarely have seen applications where I don't understand. I've seen like, you know, typos or things like that, but I can still comprehend um, what they're trying to convey in the grant application, which I think is the most important thing. But I think just proofreading, Grammarly, um, and I don't I don't know what it's called in Word or Google Docs where it underlines it in red. Right. I don't know. Just looking at some of those things and just making sure that um, what you're communicating is is making sense. 
Yeah, we got a big shout out for Grammarly in the comments. I feel like perhaps we're all spokespeople for Grammarly today because uh, we use it as well and we love it. Uh, Patty, any other tools um, that you could think of uh, that um, you've had success with in the past around editing? I love Grammarly. I love it so much. <laughs> I love it when it gives me a weekly report and tells me how I'm doing. And oh my I'm gosh, doing. yes. Is that not the best affirmation in the world? It's affirmation. I, I type now. It, I just depend on Grammarly when I'm typing, when I misspell <laughs> an article or a verb, it just knows and moves on. Uh, there is another part to careless editing, which because I've made every mistake in the book in my years as a grant writer. And when you're in a portal or preparing to be in a portal, make sure that your numbers match in each section. Like make sure if this is how many people are going to participate in the program, this is how much the it's it's numbers where sometimes the numbers don't lead, particularly if you're reapplying, you might be picking up numbers from an past application, but in a different section, you've written a new new projection. This can happen. And this is um, th this is really easy to let slip because you're not proofreading. You're literally reading the numbers from section to section in a five-part grant portal. It can get really easy. You shouldn't be, by the way, you shouldn't be editing in a portal. That should be happening <laughs> long before the portal. But if something changes, it needs to change all the way through. Yeah. Also, oh, go ahead. Huh? Also, would you get done the card by tomorrow? Okay, yeah. Get it oh, done. And then the, the one, the beauty. I muted everyone on accident. Hold on just a second. There it is. All right, we're all back. Okay, let me say I'm glad that Patty mentioned the portal um, and to be using like a Google Doc or a Word document to answer questions for the grant application and then copying and pasting it into a portal. Um, I think it's easy to make mistakes when you answer it directly in the portal. Um, and then I also just wanted to acknowledge, I think this goes to four and five is that written communication is not always the best way that individuals can express ideas, right? Mm, yes. um, I don't think written communication is it's the best way for a lot of folks. And so um, one thing that we do with Accelerator and Impact Grants um, is that applicants get the, get an option to submit either a written application, a video, or they can request an interview. And so I think as funders as well, we are starting to move away from um, this idea that written communication is like king and that everybody um, communicates best in written like language or terms, um, but also acknowledging like verbal communication, um, interviews and being able to converse and have conversations with people is also important. So I get four and five, but also just want to highlight and elevate in this conversation that written communication is not always, you know, the best way to to gather what it is that we want to gather about an organization or the best way for an organization or a nonprofit to explain the work that they're doing or hoping to do with the funds that they're asking for. That's great. I appreciate that. Thank you, Labrisa, for, for pulling that out. We had one more question that I want to highlight before we move on to the final section. And that is, uh, again, by Linda Way. Um, Linda Way says, in a number of organizations, there have been a spate of staff attrition related to compensation. This affects the ability of the organization to meet expected outcomes. 
to what extent are funding partners open to budget provisions for salaries and benefits? It's a little bit of a chicken and egg matter. So Lindy Way is asking specifically here about going kind of back to that overhead conversation, um, but asking about, um, I guess, just in general, if funding partners are open to uh, salaries and benefits and asks. So Labrisa, I'm going to put that to you first. Are they open to them asking or for them to put in in budget expected like salary increases? Is that the question? Um, Let's, let's answer both. It says related to compensation. Let's take it as both. Um, Do funders, want to see it in the budget and do, are they open to seeing increases in the budget? So I I would say yes to both. Um, I know when I was in ED, I remember submitting um, a federal application and they actually came back to me and was like, oh, are are the employees going to, it was a three-year grant. Um, They're like, oh, are the employees not going to get increases? I'm like, oh, they are. Well, can we reflect that in the budget? And so, yes, they do like to see it. Um, And I will say on the funder side of things, um, even if it's like the cost of living or there's, I think there's always some adjustment to be had from year to year. And so I think make sure that that that's reflected in the budget, I think also just goes to show that you take care of your employees, um, which I value and I think is important. So I think, yeah, reflecting it in the budget um, as long as it's not like, like crazy jumps, you know? like, <laughs> somebody's going, yeah, just not like big crazy jumps, but as long as it's justified, I think it's important to reflect it in the budget. So we know that that's a part of what's projected and actual and all the things. Very nice. Patty, anything to add to four, five, or six before we move on to our, our next section? No, I think it's been really interesting to hear these comments. Awesome. We have Lindy Way laughing, which is great. Glad to crack you up this morning, Lindy Way. All right. So let's move on to the top three grant writing mistakes. According to uh, the uh, Midwest Private Foundations we reached out to. So number three, answers to questions are incomplete or missing key information. Number two, and boy, did we get some comments from our foundations about number two. Budget contains errors, unexplained items, or inflated costs. And number one, the number one grant writing mistake across the board, not following instructions. All right, Patty, I'm going to start with you this time. What are your just kind of initial, any surprises here? Anything that jumps out at you about these three? No, I think this is what <laughs> I would expect. I do have, a, we're, as a grant writer, I have a horror story on number three. We all have horror stories. Years ago, I was transferring things into a portal for a big, big grant. And on one of them, I was like, oh, that's not the right answer. I need to redig that one. So, but I wanted to draft in the portal. I wanted to see that it was submitted as draft in the portal. So I put it in there. I did not go back and put the additional section. I just put TBD. I'd written TBD. And for, I only did it once in my career, but I submitted a grant. And when I got the feedback, you know, when when it sends you the complete grant, there was this white space where I'd written TBD and I was under the desk. Look, Lindsay's cringing just hearing this. (laughs) 
And um, I reached out to the program officer and I, immediately, and I explained what had happened, even provided the section which had been completed, and they accepted it. I was. Oh, that's wonderful. I was thrilled. I will say I wasn't on deadline day, and that probably helped. <laughs> I wasn't turning it in at deadline day, which is another part of not, I think, not following instructions. I also think not following instructions a little bit bleeds into prospect research in uh, that the match is a big part of the instructions, knowing that you're applying for funding that suits your program. I know that sounds like a, a stretch, but I don't think so. I think that's yeah. part of the, they're, they're, the funders are typically trying to tell you what they fund. And if you send them something that's not in their funding area, it just gums up the works a little bit. Right. Absolutely. No, there's a lot to talk about here. Labrisa, what were your initial reactions to the top three? Yeah, makes sense. No, no surprises at all over here. Um, and I think what Patty just mentioned is that the following instructions, knowing what the requirements are, right? And so with the ANI grant, people have to be in Tulsa. So the orgs have to be, we have a geographical requirement, um, but also BIPOC led. And we'll get applications from folks outside of Tulsa. And it just tells me that you didn't read the website. Right. Like you didn't read the application, right? Um, and so just following in, I think that's just that's the very first step is reading, knowing that the work that you're doing is aligned with the with the mission of the foundation, um, with the funder. Um, the submitting a budget with errors, I was not surprised at all. Um, I think. For folks who don't have like finance backgrounds or budget background, it can be difficult. Um, and I remember submitting um, grants for the first time and trying to work on the budget. And it's a lot of moving pieces. Um, so that one was not surprising to me at all. Um, the questions about incomplete or missing key information. I think folks try to put a lot in there and forget to answer the actual question of what's being asked. Yes. Absolutely. Because um, so, it's an answer there and it's like a paragraph and it's a lot there, but it's not what was being asked of the applicant. You know, I will say that that is one of the areas that we probably spend the most of our time coaching some of our newer writers on is that they will um, go in and, you know, as I feel like nonprofits have to strike a really careful balance because they have a story that they're trying to tell and they have a narrative that they're trying to get across. And they want to do that while also answering the question that the foundation has provided. And I feel like it sometimes it's easy, especially if you have language already written or that you used for another grant to use that language and you don't strike the right balance, right? You're you're too much on in your own narrative and you haven't adequately addressed the question the foundation is actually asking of you. So I feel like that's something that is a real challenge. Um, and I'm going to bounce this one back to you, Labrisa. From a, a ratio perspective, if you were going to look at an answer and say, okay, this answered my question, would you be looking at something that was like 50-50 perhaps that, you know, maybe half of the answer was the nonprofit trying to provide you some context around that thing. And 50% of the answer was a very clear, concise, direct answer to your question. Like what is, what is the line, right? Like what is the, the, the line get drawn for incomplete? Mm -hmm. 
I like 50-50. I think concise is great, but I think oh, it's so subjective because concise yeah. to one person <laughs> could be incomplete to somebody else, right? And so, oh, yeah, it's very subjective, which I don't like giving that answer, but um, yeah, I like the 50-50. Okay. Because answer the question in a concise way, but then provide some additional context, I think is helpful. So then it's not considered incomplete. Um, Really do feel like it varies from person to person, depending on the background information they may or may not have about the org, um, whether they are going through, you know, 50 grant applications versus five um, and having like the time and capacity to read like every word. So it depends. I don't like giving that answer, but it depends. Do you, um, uh, this is one of my, just like my personal burning grant writing questions. Do you recommend, let's say you've got a 500 character count and you ask a question of a nonprofit and the nonprofit technically can answer that question in like 20 words or less, right? Like it's just a simple, straightforward answer. Do you as the funder see that as an opportunity? Obviously we know we don't want to submit fluff and you know just extra stuff for you to read. But is that an opportunity in your eyes for the nonprofit to provide more context, to provide more meat and potatoes behind that? Or do you as the funder really prefer that the nonprofit just answer the question as cleanly and as briefly as possible and move on to the next thing? Oh, I'm excited about this answer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're asking me the tough questions. Um, So I like concise, but I also like the additional information, honestly. Like, I don't feel like you need to max out every, you know, question on the character portal. And I wouldn't talk just to talk. So I feel like if it is helpful and beneficial and you feel like it will add to um, the application, I would add it on there. But I wouldn't be like, okay, well, I have 200, you know, characters (laughs) on every question. Let me make sure I get to 200 just to get to 200. No. Right. Um, But if you feel like it is a value add, then I would add it. Um, But if you have to like try to come up with stuff and you probably don't need to add it. Right. And so I think concise in the beginning is great. So maybe like the first few sentences are concise with additional context. So if someone wants to continue to read, they can, but they will get the the key information in the beginning answer that you're providing. Right. So I can get it in the beginning. If I want more, there's more there. Um, and I can continue to read and read if I need more, um, but don't talk just to talk. I think getting the key information across is important. If you feel like there's things you can add that is a value add, add it. Um, but you don't have to max out every character. I don't think that's necessary. That's the old don't bury the lead. I love that. The old the old newspaper adage. Um, that's great. Um, we do have a question. Jonathan, why don't you take our, our question um, from the audience real quickly? Yeah, definitely. Um, Layla asked, uh, how do you all, how you all manage grant applications that are being written and edited by more than one person? So our grant portal, once it's submitted, it can be edited. So that's for the ANI and for the traditional grant making at the foundation. So once it is submitted, um, there's login information for the traditional grant making piece. So they can go in and save it and edit and save it. But once it's submitted, it's submitted. And that's the same for the ANI grant process. And so we don't really have to navigate that um, if I'm understanding the question correctly. Yeah, I guess 
Uh, Patty, maybe maybe you can provide some context when you're working on a team with with multiple people editing and writing. How do you keep one voice and and one succinct story? Well, I mean, obviously, one of my favorite things about Write On Fundraising is we're writing as a team. And that's a newer experience because most grant writers are writing individually. I would say throughout my career, though, I've had people editing. It used to be that we were moving the doc from one edit to the other. I love Google Docs because it's very easy to track the comments and the conversation. And someone, there does have to be an editor who reads it for continuity, the entire thing at the end. It's very clearly in a small nonprofit should be the decision maker. If you all are... for the grant writers on the call, if you've, um, you, the executive director, the head of the program, whoever it is that, that you're writing for needs to understand the entire, what you're asking for, because they might get it. And that might mean that they have to expand their capacity, make changes. So it's very important. And it goes all the way back to the editing. If you're asking for a million dollar program for a new initiative and the money's awarded, that will probably mean someone to do handle grants management and reporting and new positions. So I would say that you have the final rider. And then it's really important, even if the executive director of a large organization might find it tedious, it's really important that they review it after that final voice is there. That's a very tactical way to answer the question, but that's, yeah, that's where I live. So. Thank you, Patty. I, I want us to um, move on to number two, because I want us to talk through a couple things here around budgets, because this is just, this is just such a big piece. Um, some of the things that we see as far as the budget containing errors, unexplained items, or inflated costs. I think one of the things that we see um, at write-on goes back to the overhead question, where we do get folks that put things in the budget in a place that really inflates overhead. If you include, for example, all of your salaries on, on one line and half of the people on your team are actually providing direct service to your clients, then that's not overhead. Those are programmatic costs and go in your program budget. Um, and there's there's other things that we, we frequently see as well, um, and including, I'm going to be completely honest, one of the things that we heard back from some of the foundations that took this survey was just simple mathematic mathematical errors, just adding and subtracting incorrectly or not answering the the questions correctly. Um, I have a comment about this. Uh, Okay. Let's see. Who is this from? Sorry, I got to move my screen around a little bit. Oh, for Julie at the Right Path. So great point. Uh, I am dealing with several grants right now that were funded for the ask and not, and now the executive director doesn't want to spend the money that way, even though it was approved in the application. Do you have a suggestion to prevent this in the future? So this is not necessarily about the budget, but about allocation. Um, and this definitely happens, right? Especially because as we know, there's a lot of turnover in fundraising. So someone may have completed a grant for an ask and then it's funded, but now there's been turnover or attrition and that person who was going to do that isn't there anymore. Um, I, I have an answer on this one, but I'm going to toss it over to you, LaBrisa, first. What would your uh, recommendation be there? 
Well, I would, my first thing would be to communicate with the program officer, the funder. So communicate, um, maybe just provide some context as to, you know, what is happening. Um, I think a lot of this also depends on, is it restricted or unrestricted, which I'm assuming is restricted because if it's unrestricted, it probably wouldn't be as relevant. Um, but I would say communication, communicating is the biggest thing. I know this happened to me as an ED and I had a really friendly program officer and we just talked through it and they were like, a okay with it. It would still allow us to move towards um, those low, larger outcomes and goals that we were working towards. So it wasn't, you know, an issue at all. And so I would say the communication piece is the biggest piece and not trying to navigate it on your own, but including the funder in that process um, as you figure out how to reallocate those funds. Right. We have uh, one of our relationship managers dealt with this directly. Um, in her previous position, she wrote grants for a university, won a, a really big grant from the federal government for um, a farmer's market. And then there was a switch in leadership and the new president of the university didn't want to um, focus on the same things. And so the relationship manager on our team reached out to the funder and said, hey, this is what we wrote the grant for. This is how our priorities have changed. There was an opportunity to partner with a farmer's market that was actually happening right down the road to actually have a greater impact in the community. So they kind of changed the pitch talked to the program representative about that and it ended up, you know, having far more impact for the same amount of money and, and the, uh, everybody in, involved was really happy with that. So uh, Labrisa, I think you hit the nail on the head. You just got to take it to the program officer. And I really do think that um, rarely have I seen only once, honestly, have I ever seen a, a private foundation come back and say that they wouldn't work around the new parameters Um Again, if the alignment is there and strong enough that the gift was made, they're going to want to work with you to, to figure out how to make it happen. Um, uh, let's see. Following instructions. We've got about 10 minutes left. So following instructions is, is number one. It's a big one. Um, at Ride On, what, one of the things that we use, one of the tools that we use to help make sure that we're following instructions is that we create a checklist mm-hmm. out of the guidelines that were given 45 days before a grant is due. And then we review those. Uh, it's actually called the 45 day review. We review all those things. We make sure we've got all of our ducks in a row and then we go from there. Um, but I mean, gosh, there's so much in, in, in the instructions. I think we had a question again from Lindy Way about providing more flexibility in applications. So let's take a look at that. Lindy Way asks, has there been a move amongst funding partners to non-restricted fundraising or to provide more flexibility in applications? Labrisa, I'm going to uh, toss that to you. Sure. Um, I would say restricted and unrestricted. Some of it is also based on national funding. Um, and so sometimes the more restricted funds are because it's at a higher like national funder that's providing those funds. And so it's specific to, I think about like very specific organizations that have like very specific missions. Um, and so an organization could have different programs, but only one program is aligned with the mission of that funder um, is when it becomes restricted. Right. And so. 
I would say it varies if it can. I mean, if there's only one program that's aligned with that org, then that's the program that's going to receive the restricted funds. But I I think for the most part, um, as long as the entire organization is mission aligned, all the programs are mission aligned. um, I've seen a lot more general ops and unrestricted grants being granted to those orgs. Um, But I think the challenge is that organizations have different programs and not all of them are always aligned with the mission and the vision of the foundation or of that funder. Um, And then to the second question in terms of flexibility with the application, um, I think that's what we've been trying to create with the accelerator and impact grants. So when we say people can submit a written application, a video, an interview, um, is really trying to ease the grant making process or the grant application process on the nonprofit side um, is our goal, right? Like that's what we want to do. We don't want to create, um, you know, this burdensome application process. Um, we want to work with organizations, and so. Um, I think that's a part of what we've been trying to create with this new grant cycle as well with the ANI Accelerator and Impact Grants. And then when I think about traditional grant making, I think there's lots of opportunity, right, for flexibility and for us to move towards um, more flexible applications and what that looks like. But I will say that even in traditional grant making, um, funders are thinking about um, the applications, right, and the ease of applications. And because if it's, if it's difficult for an organization or nonprofit to navigate an application, it's just as difficult on the back end to read, to look through all, like, it's, so the ease of access, I think, goes both ways is what I'm trying to say. Interesting. Um, and so, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Labrisa. Uh Patty, any comments about, about ease of access applications? All right, can I add one thing? Sorry, Lindsay. Of course, go for it. I think it also depends on the type of funding that you're trying to access, right? So if it's private, that's what I'm referencing. But if we're talking about federal, I don't know if that'll ever change, right? It's a lot of hoops and it's a lot of, you know, requirements that um, that are in place to apply for those funds. And so I think it also depends on the type of funding that you're requesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I would, that's exactly where I was going. Mix of funding. That's why you want different income streams, some restricted, some unrestricted, some annual giving, all of those things to support. I will also say one of the things that I think I've noticed um, is it's not necessarily a breakdown of, you know, which which foundations are going to give general opposite, which are only going to give restricted um, one of the things that I've noticed is that it really comes down to the relationship. I've noticed that more foundations are more likely to make general operating gifts once they have made a number of program gifts and there's a strong relationship there. They know who you are. They trust you to do what you say you're going to do. They know you're going to have great outcomes. Once you have a stronger relationship, regardless of what that foundation typically gives to, it's usually easier to make a general operating request once that trust is in place between the nonprofit and the uh, and the foundation. All right, so we've got five minutes left and I have one more thing to show you today. We want to end this on a high note. This was, of course, about the 10 most uh, common grant writing mistakes, but that means that there are things that are not common grant writing mistakes that we actually get right in our grants. And I wanted to take just a second to pull those out as well before we leave today um, and celebrate what we're getting right. Woohoo! So these, my friends, my fundraisers, 
These are the things that we are getting right. We tend to not ask for too little. We're getting the asks where they need to be. This one, I'm so happy to see. There are not that many missed deadlines. Can we get snaps all the way around for meeting our deadlines? Our hair might be on fire. We may have stayed up all night, but we are meeting the deadline. Good job, friends. Um, We are not failing to discuss with our grant foundation reps when the guidelines tell us to do so. We're meeting with our foundation friends, creating relationships, talking through the opportunities, making sure we get out from behind our desk and have face time with the people who are funding us. Um, We are not getting our applications disqualified for failing to submit reports. We're doing a really good job of getting those reports turned in um, so that we can line up our next application and continue that relationship. And we do a really good job of presenting information to foundations that is not untested, excuse me, untested or overly complex. We're doing a great job of explaining our narrative, telling our story, explaining how we move the needle and getting our needs asked. So snaps and round of applause fundraisers. We are getting some things done right and we are very excited about it. Um, I want to thank our speakers today. Thank you so much, Labrisa. Thank you so much, Patty, for joining us. Jonathan, I'm going to kick it over to you to talk about what we have coming up next month. Zach, I saw your question and and I will get back to you on that. Um, Jonathan, why don't you close us out today? Yeah, thank you so much, Lindsay. And thank you, uh, Patty and Labrisa. What a great masterclass. Mm -hmm. I no longer how long you've been a grant writer. I know that I learned a ton. I'm sure everybody listening did. Uh, Really quickly, I want to plug our upcoming masterclass. On July 19th, we'll be having a masterclass on the future of corporate giving and what it means for fundraising today. So uh, Patty had mentioned needing to diversify those funding streams to get that unrestricted funding. Corporate giving is sometimes a great way to have that diverse funding stream. Uh, But corporate giving has undergone a few significant changes over the last few years. And as many CEOs and corporations are now bracing for a potential recession, where does that leave your sponsorship programs, special events, or other asks for support from the business community? Uh, On July 19th, please join Lindsay and myself and uh, a few special guests as we discuss the metamorphosis of corporate giving and how nonprofits can position their programs to win funding now and in the future. Thank you all so much again for joining us today. Big round of applause for both Patty and Labrisa. Thank you both for being with us. Have a great rest of your day and we hope to see you all again soon. Thank you.